The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning everyone. Welcome to CCF. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, We'll be looking this morning in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 21 through 23, and if you've been with us uh, the last few weeks as we started this uh, study through Colossians, uh, this actually ends the first of uh, uh, the opening section to the book that began in verse 3. So I'm going to actually read um, uh, 21 to 23, but... but just keep in mind that this is uh, part of a longer uh, introduction that Paul has given. So let's read uh, Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Um, This uh, section actually begins uh, very similarly, and let me just read. I don't have the scripture up here, but very similar words that Paul uses when he begins this Uh, discussion, this introduction, he says, We always thank God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, uh, which indeed, uh, which uh, has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth. So um, uh, the reason I just mentioned that is to show that Paul's really coming back to a lot of things he started with, and it kind of ties this uh, first section together. And uh, it, it brings us to uh, the question, which we really haven't talked about yet, but why was Paul writing this letter? And um, uh, Paul uh, really has a purpose in what he writes. It wasn't just he was bored. He was in prison, so he probably was bored, actually, um, and probably didn't have a lot of other things to do. But when he writes these letters, especially the ones that are preserved for us in Scripture, it's clear that there's a purpose. And usually, not always, but often the purpose related to some problem going on with the people he's writing to, some worry or concern. And certainly, Paul and Timothy here uh, have some concerns, not maybe major ones like in Corinth where the church was kind of falling apart, but but he's worried that there are some things that are threatening uh, this this new and young and probably small church in, Col- in Colossae. Um, and, the, and the reality is that there, there are real threats to the Christian life. And so uh, Paul is wanting to prepare them or warn them to deal with these threats that, uh, that he knows are coming or perhaps are already there. Um, and as we see here, the threats that he's worried about are, are not minor things. They are serious because ultimately what's at stake, at stake is people's eternal salvation. Uh, he is worried that, uh, that they could drift away uh, from uh, their salvation in Christ. And uh, if, if, if you've grown up in the church, if you, uh, if you have a lot of Christian history with you, uh, you may instantly think, well, there's really nothing to worry about because doesn't the Bible say that our salvation is guaranteed? Right? Isn't that taught throughout the Bible, the assurance of our salvation, the guarantee of our salvation? I thought once you signed the dotted line, like you couldn't lose your salvation, right? Um, if God has saved us, then doesn't it say like in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God? So can there possibly really be any threats to our salvation if we're, you know, if we've been saved? Well, um, uh, 
The Bible contains certainly many assurances that we cannot lose our salvation. And, and those promises are, are absolutely true. But interesting, the Bible is also full, not just here, but in many places, uh, of warnings uh, that we do not assume we are saved, right? And we'll, we'll see how this plays out in a, as, as the sermon unfolds. But the, the problem is not really that we could lose our salvation, but that we have a false sense of security that we are saved when we are not, right? And so... Um, I think it's, 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 it's a good habit, it's a good exercise for us to always think this through. Because there's nothing, there's nothing uh, worse, there's nothing more terrifying to think we are in a right relationship with God and to die and to uh, stand before God and hear these words that Jesus talks about in Luke, 16, Luke 13, uh, where Jesus says at the judgment seat, you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Lord Jesus, we know you. We remember you. We heard about you. Certainly we know you. Certainly we have a right to enter uh, your eternal life in heaven. But Jesus will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Right? Nobody wants to stand before God and hear those words, right? So it's, it's important for us to um, not just take things for granted, but to carefully examine uh, what it really means to be saved, uh, where our confidence should lie, and where we might have reasons to be concerned. And so it's a vitally important topic for every person to think about and consider. Uh, Is your your salvation uh, assured for the right reasons? Or do you have a false hope and a false confidence that is rooted in error? So that's ultimately what Paul's dealing with here, uh, with the Colossians. And in this passage, he kind of starts to hint at it. Um, and so, so let's first, uh, first of all look at reasons why we should be confident. Okay, uh, Reasons for confidence in our salvation. Um, first of all, and, and in this uh, first few couple of verses, Paul kind of looks uh, past, present, and future, where, where we were in the past, where we are now, and what future we have to look forward to. Um, and and uh, so the reasons for our confidence we start off with, um, and really Paul looks back in our past at, at why we have no reason for confidence in ourselves. Okay, We have no reason to be confident in anything we have done. And he starts off with these startling words, and you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Okay, this is who we were in the past. He said, and the word here, uh, once, really is the word formally, or at a previous time, before you came to Christ. This is who you were. Uh, and he's speaking here, uh, both here and, and really in, in all of uh, his writings, Paul makes a strong case that this is true for every human being. There's no person who is ever born who was not, at, uh, from, from their birth up until they came to faith in Christ, who was anything other than alienated uh, from God and hostile in mind to him doing evil deeds. And he uses three descriptions here. First, being alienated. And uh, to be alienated means to be isolated or cut off or estranged from God. Right? We, were, we were cut off from God, from a, a relationship with him. And the Bible teaches that that's the clear consequence of sin. And we see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve. And uh, the garden wasn't just a nice place with pretty flowers and a nice place to kind of take walks in the evening. Uh, It was that, right? It wasn't just a place that provided food for them because there was abundant orchards and fruit and vegetables. It was that for sure, but it was not, not just that. The garden ultimately was the place of relationship where man, where Adam and Eve could meet with God and walk with him in fellowship, in relationship. Um, And and so you see this picture that God would come and he would walk with them in the cool of the evening. He would meet with them, right? There was relationship. But as soon as Adam sinned, uh, they are kicked out of the garden. And it's a tragic picture of of what was lost, what was severed, 
uh, through sin, right? We were cut off from God. We were severed. We were put out of his presence. We no longer had that access uh, directly to him. We were now alienated, uh, far from him. Uh, We were without a relationship with him. And in fact, sin prevents us from having a relationship with God uh, in any form or shape. There's no way we could know him. Uh, We were far away from God in every way, removed from him. That's the word alienated, uh, living far outside of his presence. But not only that, it says that we were also, he says you, Colossians is really speaking to us, you you who were hostile in mind. Okay, in our mind and our thinking, we were hostile toward God, uh, rejecting him. Uh, It's a picture of really slamming the door in God's face. So not only were we, we... were we removed from him, far from him, but if God ever came near, we would, we would reject him. We would slam the door in his face. Uh, now, most people, uh, and maybe you can think back to the time before you were a believer, or maybe you're still seeking, you, you haven't really come to Christ yet, and you're not in that place yet, and you would say, well, I'm not hostile to God. I have, I, I have nothing against God, right? I'm not out to get him. I'm not, I don't hate God. Right? And certainly most people um, uh, would feel that, well, I think God must be a pretty likable chap, right? And if God wants to help me, well, good for him, right? Why would I, why would I hate somebody who's, who, who's powerful and big and out there and who could help us? Uh, certainly I'm not hostile to God. Um, but, but I think the reason uh, people don't feel that they're hostile to God is because they are so far away from God, they really don't think about him at all. Right? They're, they're not hostile to God because God's not on their radar. They don't think about him. And when they do think about him, uh, what they think about God is not the true God, but a very poor counterfeit. Right? It's an idol. It's a God that they've made in their own mind, in their own thinking, and in their own image. Right? It's, a, it's a God of their own creation. And of course, they're not hostile to that God. Right? Um, we're not hostile to the God we made up because uh, we make up a God that's very likable. Uh, but that's not the real God. right? That's not the God that he's talking about here. He's talking about the true and living God who created us. And if he does ever uh, show up, if he ever comes across, if these people actually ever come across the true God, as he's revealed himself in Scripture, they are hostile to him. Right, uh, they do slam the door in his face, and in fact, they cannot stand this God of the Bible, and, and we didn't either before Christ. Right? Uh, I have a friend um, who many years ago, dear um, uh, follower of Christ, and he was actually a supervisor in the in the ministry we were in, and he tells the story of when he first uh, encountered the God, and he said he was he was just this mean. Uh, mean, horrible guy. And he worked in this uh, sawmill with these just rough guys. And he was just a rough, rough guy. And uh, one day in this sawmill, in this logging kind of community, uh, one of his employees said to him three little words. And the words were simply, God loves you. And he said he got so furious and mad, he took off his, his helmet that he would wear, and he took it and he kicked it as hard as he could. And it went flying across this huge warehouse. Right? He was irate at those simple words, God loves you. Right? Why was he so angry? Well, because his mind and his heart was hostile to God. Right? That's, that's the reality. Of course, before that, he was oblivious to God. But when God began knocking on the door of his heart, he was furious. He was furious. Praise God. Uh, those three words, though, he was, no matter how mad he was, God did, would not let those three words get out of his brain. And God was drawing him, right? But initially, he was hostile to God, right? Um, and, and, and we hear this when people, when we talk about the God of the Bible to unsaved people, and we really explain who God really is. You hear people say things like, how can God be a loving God if he doesn't give me what I want? Right? How can God be truly loving and good if he causes suffering and pain and difficulty in my life? I lost this dearly loved one, or I lost this child, or this tragedy happened to me. How can God be good if he is like that? And there is biting hostility in their questions and in their words. Right? 
They do not like this God. Because they don't understand who He really is. And they blame Him for uh, the evils in the world. Right? Uh, or when they are confronted with the demands of God's moral standard, they, they react with, how dare God change me? How dare God condemn or criticize my lifestyle? I have a right to this lifestyle, and if God really was a good and loving God, He would let me be whatever I want to be. Right? And you see, there's that hostility. And we see that really played out not just towards God, but we see it more and more as people with these attitudes and these hearts are, are exercising this hostility towards this church. Right? If we stand up for what is right and true, what, what Scripture teaches, uh, we are called hateful. Right? We are called uh, bigots and, and uh, full of evil because we don't accept people uh, and their lifestyles. Uh, of course, I think they're also misunderstanding the church. I think we accept people and we love them in their lifestyles, um, but we never promise that God uh, will keep them in their sinful lifestyle. Right? That's not what the Scripture teaches. Right? So, all that to say, uh, we were the enemy of God. Formerly, we were His enemy. We weren't friends with God. We weren't on good terms with God. We were His enemy. And not only that, but but uh, uh, God was an enemy to us, right? Because we were, as a result of our sin, we were under his wrath. Um, and again, like if you want people to be hostile, this is a good one. Just to talk about the fact that God is a wrath, a God of wrath who has a right to judge you for your sin. What? <laughs> what? I, don't, I, I could never worship a God like this. Uh, of course, they would never put up with injustice in their own life, right? They want justice in their own life, but they can't imagine a God who demands justice of us, right? Um, so so we, we, are, we are an enemy to God, and he is an enemy to us, right? That's who we were before. And not only in our minds, but he says you were doing evil deeds. Uh, so our actions were also against God. Our actions were things that were not pleasing to God. Evil in every way. Wicked. Uh, Paul uses a word in the Greek that's kind of the, the worser word for, for evil. <laughs> like evil. That's the word we get the word pornography from. Porne. Right? So, uh, so that uh, our deeds were so evil that even our good deeds are described as filthy rags. Even the good things we, do, we did were so full of self-righteousness and pride in what we accomplished even those things are evil, evil in God's sight. Right? Uh, so that's, that's the past. That's who we were. And, and there's no, obviously there's no confidence in that. Like if we're looking for confidence, we can't find confidence in anything we've done if we understand who we were before. Right? We were enemies of God, alien, and full of evil deeds, so that even our good deeds were evil. Right? Uh, there's no confidence there. Uh, and Paul does not say that. But instead, our confidence is in what Christ has accomplished, right? So, uh, again, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, you he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. All right? He has reconciled you. Um, that is where our confidence is. In the work of Christ and what he has accomplished to reconcile our broken relationship with God, right? And that is what he has done. He has reconciled you. And reconciliation is simply to restore a broken relationship or to make peace, right? So if you get in a fight with somebody, your spouse or a friend, and you have a falling out and you say bad things and you say mean things or maybe you even do some terrible things to them, it breaks the relationship, Right? There's, there's a wall, there's a division in that relationship. You're no longer at peace or at peace with that person. And there's likely unforgiveness and there's distance, right? There's no longer warmth and connection and closeness. It's been broken. And so there, there is some need to restore, to reconcile that relationship. Um, we know right now there's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, they don't love each other, right? I doubt that uh, either of them are going to exchange Christmas cards this, this Christmas, right? Um, 
And, and the only way that peace can be made is, is if there's reconciliation, right? Uh, so we have, we have to have this relationship with God reconciled. Um, and reconcilia- reconciliation is the idea of restoring something to a previously harmonious state. Now, of course, we never had before a harmonious relationship with God. But that really refers to restoring what God intended in creation. Right? God intended us to walk into that good relationship with him in Christ. But, but, uh, but that's broken and it's restored now in Christ. Uh, we are now brought near through Jesus, right? Uh, we are brought near so that we are no longer alienated and strangers, but we are near to him. Uh, we are now friends. We are no longer enemies that we were before. Uh, in our mind, we now love God. And we are no longer hostile toward him. Uh, and, 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 and so that's what it means to be reconciled, to be reunited in right relationship with God. Uh, that's what Jesus has done. How did he do that? Well, it says he did that in the body of his flesh by means of his death. Um, now, <clears throat> reconciliation with God is a little different than reconciliation with your wife or your husband, right? When we have a problem uh, we usually don't demand a payment. Now, sometimes the gesture is nice, right? Like, you know, if you've offended your wife or uh, said something mean or just been kind of a general jerk, right? Like buying flowers uh, or chocolate or diamond ring, new car, I don't know, right? Uh, I mean, those things can have effect, right? But, but we're not actually purchasing a relationship with them. Right? We're not buying, like it's a nice gesture. But for us, reconciliation is really based on just forgiveness. We realize our own sin, and, and so we, we forgive, we extend forgiveness to one who is also a sinner. But it's different with God. But he is not a sinner, and he doesn't extend forgiveness to us on the basis of, well, I mess up, and so how can I expect you not to mess up? I'll just forgive you. It's not how it works with God, because he's a holy and righteous God who never sins, uh, who never is just compelled to forgive us based on his own failings. It's not how it works, right? Uh, because what has separated us from God is not just that we hurt his feelings. Right? With our spouse, we, you know, we hurt their feelings, and we're trying to repair those feelings. With God, it's not that we hurt his feelings, right? God is not up there going, oh, I feel so wounded, right? Um, He's, he's self-sufficient in himself. He doesn't need our friendship, right? And so there's nothing in him that's uh, unraveled by our broken relationship with him. The issue is not that. The issue is that our sin is what separates us, right? Our sin is a tangible, physical barrier between us and God that stands between us and him because he is a holy God. And if we were to come into his presence uh, with our sin, we would be consumed by his holiness. Right? Uh, so sin must be dealt with. That barrier must be, of sin must be removed. And so Jesus reconciled us to, to God uh, by taking our sin upon himself. So it says in the body of his flesh. And again, if you were here last week looking at the wonders of who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, he came and in human flesh took on real flesh and bone, and he took on his body, on the cross, our sin and our guilt and all the consequences that come with it. Right? Uh, he has reconciled, reconciled us to God through the body of his flesh uh, by death, by dying, by taking on himself the punishment and judgment and wrath of God for our sin. Um, and it's this Jesus who was so magnif- magnificently described in the preceding verses, right? The one who was fully God, who was in every way uh, in heaven with the Father, who has come to earth, uh, keeping the fullness of his deity, but taking on the fullness of human flesh uh, to die for us, right? Now, I, I don't know, do, do any of you have an enemy out there somewhere? You, you, you do, you just don't know it, right? Because most of us, our enemies just kind of avoid us, they stay away from us, uh, or they just harbor it in their heart, right, you know. Uh, but if you've ever had an encounter with a real enemy who, who just hates you, 
and who spews out to you their hate, their hatred. Right? Uh, it's it's unraveling, and and I I have encountered this kind of hatred, <laughs> um, and and it's it's hard, right? And, and um, it, it's not easy to. Um, to extend anything to a person who's like that, right? In fact, what I want to do is I want to run away. I, I don't want to be near that person. I don't want to be around them. I want to, I want to protect myself from that hostility. Um, maybe I'll do something nice for them because I'm a Christian. I know I'm supposed to. But, uh, I, but I really don't want to have anything to do with them, right? Uh, but here's God. Here, here's Jesus who when we were hostile to him and his enemies, died for us, right? Laid down his life, sacrificed himself, suffered and endured incredible suffering and, and, and wrath, the wrath of God, uh, not for those who, who were his friends, but for those who were his very enemies, right? It really would be like a Russian, uh, I mean, a, a, a Ukrainian soldier, um, taking a bullet to save the life of a Russian soldier who is his enemy, right? Why would they do that? Uh, an amazing act of selfless, uh, self-sacrificing love, right? And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has reconciled us through the body of his own flesh, through his death. Um, and not only that, but... but, but Paul then shifts to the present. So we are now reconciled. If we are in Christ, we are now reconciled. We now have a, a relationship with God. Right? We are no longer alienated. We are no longer enemies. We are now uh, living in his presence. Our deeds now uh, can be righteous. They can be good. We can actually serve God in obedience and honor him through our life. Uh, but not only that, but there's, there's a, a, a hope, a promise in the future he says he is now reconciled in his body by his flesh in order to present you, and this is future, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, that is before God. Right? And this looks forward to the day of judgment. Uh, when we come and we stand before Jesus as the great judge on the white throne, when every, where every human being will stand before him. Right? And it says that he will at that time present us. He died so that he might present us. And the word here is a word that really comes out of the Old Testament uh, as a picture of presenting an offering. Or it can also describe someone presenting somebody before a, a judge or a king. right? And so we're presented by God. He, Jesus is going to bring us to, to God. He's going to present us. And to do so, we need to be acceptable. We need to be fitting. Uh, an offering uh, that is uh, brought uh, in any way that is less than perfect is an insult, right? So in the Old Testament, they couldn't bring, it's like they look out on their flock of sheep and there's some poor, crippled, dying sheep and it's like, well, I, that one's not going to live much longer. I'll offer it as a sacrifice, right? No, they couldn't do that because to do that would be to insult God. They were to give the very best, right? So what, what, what is presented has to be holy, without blemish, without defect, worthy of an offering to God. And that's the picture that Jesus will, on that day, because of his own atoning work, he will be able to present us to God as a living sacrifice, holy, like we're to do ourselves, present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And we're made that way 100% by the work of Christ. Right? We can offer ourselves in God, in service to God as an offering to him in worship because he has made us holy, without blemish or defect or fault, right? But not only that, he, he presents us before him blameless. And this kind of shifts the image from an offering to one who is presented before a judge in a court, right? And, and he's presented and he stands us before the judge and he says to us, uh, there's no charge against this person. You cannot charge him with a crime or a guilt or an error. He is absolutely Innocent and guiltless, right? That's what it means to be blameless. One who stands before the judge with no fault, right? And finally, not only are we holy and blameless, but we are above reproach. And reproach is to accuse someone of something, to make a charge against them. So we will present it 
not only blameless, without flaw or fault, but, but not even with the possibility of an accusation. Right? If Satan the accuser is there, he will have nothing to bring against us. Now this is super good news for us. Because when we stand before the holy, infinite God in judgment, right? Uh, all of your mistakes, all of your faults, all the stupid things you've done, all the things you regret, every sin, every single one, right? Through the blood of Jesus, they have been erased. They have been removed. So that when Satan stands and he wants to accuse you, he will be silent. And he will have no accusation to bring against you. No charge, no fault, no flaw, no defect. You will stand before him perfect. Of course, not because you never did anything wrong, right? Uh, but because they have been removed. They have been covered with the blood of Christ. He has erased them. He has thrown them as far as the east is from the west so that you stand before him holy and blameless. Right? Incredible. Right? And this is all the result of the cross of Christ. Uh, right? He's moved it completely through uh, the blood of his cross, he says in the previous verses. Right? And we will stand before the King, before God, the great King, for all eternity, without end, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Right? Our past erased, and we stand before him in right standing. And that's true of our sins, past, present, and future. So tomorrow, if you, if you get up and you, you mess up, it's covered by the blood of Christ, right? It will not be counted against you on the day of judgment. It's all covered, 100%. Uh, and so... Uh, at the very least, what this means for us is that we have a lot to be thankful for. Right? And that's kind of the context of what Paul, this whole section, is, is his thanksgiving for them. And certainly there is tremendous things we can give thanks for. Uh, that in spite of who we were before, through the work of Christ and through the, what he has paid, through his sacrifice, uh, we are holy. Right? We have this amazing relationship with him now and we have this incredible hope of the future right it, things are good for us and there's a confidence in this right there's an incredible confidence in this in fact uh the writer of hebrews talks about this uh in in hebrews 4 where he speaks about our boldness to come near to god Right? Not as enemies, but as friends, as those who can come boldly. He says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wow. Okay, there's confidence. There's, there's reasons for confidence. That we can know we draw near to God. We can come to Him with every request and every prayer and know that he hears us and he provides us help in our time of need. He wants relationship with us. We can know him. We can be close to him. Uh, and we have this amazing future hope of eternal life with him. All right, so th those are the reasons for confidence. So what possibly could there be reasons to not be confident? Where could we possibly have reasons for concern? Let's just end, let's just end here, okay? Let's just end on a good note. Well, no, we can't do that, right? Because Paul, uh, mid-sentence, okay, he hasn't got to the end of the sentence yet. We have to wait till we get to the period. We haven't got to the period yet in the Greek, right? And he continues on with an if. Okay, with an if. And ifs are always bad things, right? I don't like ifs, right? Um, right? Uh, he says this, 23, if, if indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Right? The if is what causes problems. An if is always a place of concern. Right? Uh, when you, when you, so this is how it works like in contracts or agreements. Right? You always want to read the fine print. And the fine print always has an if. Right? It always has an if. Right? So like, like, for example, a warranty on a, on a product. I just saw this recently. Um, I ordered something and it broke. 
And uh, so I wanted to find out, you know, what, what the warranty is. And it says fully covered, you know, three-year warranty, blah, 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 fix or replace, blah, 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 if. And this is what it said, if. Uh, and I got this through, through mail. It was like mail, you know, Lazada or whatever, I forget, uh, delivered. And it said, if you videotape yourself opening the package and, and showing from the beginning to the end the, the package and the product, then it was in good shape. Of course, you know, I start checking into this after I've already long opened the package, right? I can't go back, and it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's warranted if. But guess what, right? I already blew that, right? Or, or like credit card agreement, right? Zero percent interest. Oh, I like that, right? You can use their money for free for as long as you want. No problem. There's always fine print, right? If, if you never miss a payment and are never late, right? But if you miss one payment, if you're late one hour, it goes from zero percent to twenty-five hundred percent or whatever, right? Uh, you're going to pay. You're going to pay this until you never can pay it off, right? Right, so uh, if, if, can, if clauses mean if we meet the conditions, these promises are certain and guaranteed. But if we cannot meet the conditions, the deal's off. Okay. Um, so so, uh, so what, is this, what is he saying here, right? If we meet the conditions, we can claim salvation. But if we don't meet the conditions, we cannot claim salvation? Wow. Like, is this really what Paul's saying? Well, yes, actually it is. He says, if indeed you meet the condition. And what is the condition? That you continue in faith, steadfast, stable, uh, not, not shifting. Well, let's look at what he's saying here. Well, first, what is faith? He says, if you continue in the faith. Well, faith is believing who Jesus really is as described, as we saw in the, the passage we looked at last week. Believing that he's not just a man wasn't just a good teacher, but that he was the full uh, living God who came to earth, took on human flesh, and died for us, right? Uh, believing who he is. Uh, believing fully and confidently in what Jesus has accomplished in his death. That Jesus died on the cross and his death was sufficient. It was enough. It was adequate to cover my sins and do what it says, right? Uh, believing in that. And ultimately, believing in Christ alone, not shifting, right? Not shifting to other things or other saviors or other plans of salvation. And, and here's where I think a lot of people uh, miss what true faith is. Faith is believing in Christ alone and nothing else. Okay, believing in Christ alone and nothing else. True faith is exclusive. And a lot of people, speaking of reasons why people are hostile towards Christians, this is one. When we tell them there is only one path. What? Well, I would never worship a God if he only makes it one way. Like that's just so narrow, right? But there is only one way. Paul says it is in faith in Christ alone. And you see, to turn from one path uh, is to stop trusting Christ and to begin trusting in something else. Right? Imagine, there's an illustration. Imagine you were gonna, you want to go to Bangkok or pick a place. I don't care. You want to go somewhere. You want to go, right? Go to Bangkok. And you have options before you. You could take a plane. You could take a train. You could drive. Um, back in the old days, they went by elephant. So you could go that way if you want. You could ride a bicycle. It would take a while, right? You pick, right? But you pick. You decide you're going to, to drive yourself. Well, when you choose driving the car, you have rejected all those other options, right? Unless you're going to throw an elephant in the trunk just in case. I don't know, right? Uh, no, you, you've committed yourself and you've said by, by trusting in your car to get you there, you are rejecting all other modes of transportation, right? And if, if halfway there you decide you're tired of driving and so you stop and you decide you want to get on the train or get the elephant out of the trunk and ride the elephant, right? Now, all of a sudden, you're no longer relying on your car. You've, you've left that behind. And now you're trusting in the train or whatever. You've shifted, right? Well, that's, how faith, that's the nature of faith. When you pick a path, when you pick a mode, a way to go forward, you're rejecting all the others. And, and, and 
Paul's saying here, faith to continue has to be resonant and fully upon Christ only. Right? And, and unfortunately, far, far too many people, especially uh, in, in this region of the world, they want it to be Jesus and something else. Well, I'm going to try them all, you know, and, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to just do a little bit of everything and try to cover my bases. See, that's not true faith. That is not faith at all, actually. Right? It's just, um, it's just hoping for good luck. Faith is a commitment to follow the path provided through Christ, right? Um, so faith is exclusive by nature. It means faith in Christ alone, not our good deeds, not our efforts, not other religions, not other gods, not other saviors. It's Christ alone. And he says you must continue in that faith, steadfast, stable, and not shifting. Uh, stable means, uh, the word here in Greek is the idea of established, something that's built on an immovable foundation, that's planted and anchored on an immovable foundation. Um, have you ever seen them building a, a large skyscraper? The first thing they dig, do is they dig this massive hole in the ground, sometimes hundreds of feet deep, until they find rock, solid rock. And they build, they plant the building firmly on that foundation, right? That's the word here. Established on a solid foundation. Steadfast has the idea of not subject to change. It is planted in one spot and unmoving. And finally, it says not shifting, right? Not, not vacillating, not moving between two ideas or two things or two beliefs, right? Combined, this paints a picture of a person who cannot be moved in terms of their faith and belief. They're solidly anchored in their convictions and belief that Christ is the only way and there's salvation in him. Um, and, and it's not just faith by itself, but it's faith in the hope of the gospel, he says, Okay, so faith is not some magic thing that, that works all by itself. It has to ha- be in something. It has to be anchored on something. That foundation must be planted on something. And what it must be planted on is the hope of the gospel. And hope here in the Bible doesn't mean like wishful thinking. It means a confident expectation about the, the results, the, the promise of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Uh, well, he says that it's, it's that which you heard and which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, this is saying a lot when Paul says, you know, you've heard it. He talked about Epaphras preaching the gospel to them. Cool. But he says, you know, it's been preached under all creation, under everything that God has made. Well, that's kind of a, a broad and kind of it's a big statement, especially 2,000 years ago, when, when we know that it probably wasn't preached in Africa. Right? Uh, what does Paul mean by this? Well, clearly it's, a, it's an overstatement. It's, it's, a, it's a hyperbole. He's, he's, he's saying it big. But what he, what he means by this, he's not so concerned about the places the gospel is preached, but he's, he's concerned about the, the singleness of the message. What he's saying is everywhere it's preached in all of creation, wherever it goes, uh, from now forward, Every place, the gospel message is the same message everywhere. It's the message you heard. It's the message all true uh, preachers are preaching. Uh, It's the message that I have been called to. It's one message, and it's a simple message, and it's simply this. You were alienated and hostile to God, but but Jesus reconciled you through his, his flesh by his death. That's the gospel. Jesus, who was... God, come down from heaven. Right? That's the gospel. And it's this unchanging message that our hope is anchored to, our faith is anchored to. Right? So then where is the reason for concern? Um, uh, if, if this is all true, then, then we're good, right? We're good. If you just continue in faith, I got this. But let me just close with a couple brief warnings. All right? Because Paul does want us to be a little bit concerned. So what are the reasons for concern? Well, he says we should be concerned if our faith does not endure, if our faith fizzles out, if our faith does not make it to the end. Right? If that's the case, then we do not have salvation. Right? We are still alienated, hostile to God, 
and in our evil deeds. And here's the problem. Wavering faith is not saving faith. If our faith gives out, it's not true faith. Right? So how do you know your faith is right? Well, first of all, let's talk briefly about how our faith can be in the wrong place. Right? Um, faith in the wrong place results in a false assurance or false confidence. Um, and the problem is that when, our, when we're overly confident about the wrong things, we are at great risk. When I was younger and, and much more foolish, I'm still foolish, but I was way more foolish when I was young. Okay, I'll just be clear with that. Right? I'm only half foolish now. I was all foolish then. And back then I had this confidence that I, and this belief that I was indestructible. I know that sounds irrational, and, but that's true actually of most 19-year-old boys, guys, right? They, they had this confidence, and I did. I remember one day I was out in the mountains climbing, and I ended up on this cliff climbing without ropes and without anybody else around, actually, uh, way up off the ground, and uh, I slipped. And uh, praise God, uh, I caught myself before falling hundreds of feet to the ground. Uh, I about wet my pants, I'm telling you right now. I was freaked out. I was thinking, why was I so confident that I could do this, that I was indestructible? And just in a flash of a moment, I realized, oh, no, I'm very destructible. If I had fallen off that rock, when I hit the ground, it would, I, it would not have been pretty. Right? Um, so, so, so we can have a false confidence when our faith is in the wrong thing. And here's, here's, here's some, some examples, right? People can think, well, surely I'm saved because I've had an experience where I realized sin and God's wrath. Like I, I've had this encounter and I see how sinful I am and how uh, I am under God's judgment. So I must be saved because I've, I've encountered this terrifying uh, vision of God's wrath. I had this encounter, this experience when I was six years old. Uh, went to church, some revival meetings, and some hellfire and brimstone preacher scared the daylights out of me and uh, terrified me. And I went home telling my mom, I'm in big trouble. I'm going to hell, right? And my mom said, well, you can just pray and God will help you. That was actually not the best answer, right? Because I believe just because I prayed and, and I told God, yeah, I'm terrified of you. Please don't send me to hell, that I was saved. That's not saving. There's no salvation in that. Paul did not say here, you know, faith in the wrath of God that's going to destroy you. There's no, there's no salvation in that. Right? Our faith is not based in an awareness of God's wrath. That's a good step in the right direction. But that in itself does not save you. I was not saved when I cried for God to not, not send me to hell. Right? Why? Because I had no basis what was I trusting in? My pleas for help? Right? Um, some people think, well, I, I know I'm saved because I've had a spiritual encounter. I had this moving experience with God through worship or on some mountaintop, uh, literally or figuratively, where I felt God move. So I know I'm saved. Because uh, I've had these religious feelings, these spiritual feelings. Saving faith is not rooted in our experience. Okay, if you're trusting in some experience you've had or some encounter, you should be very concerned. Because Paul does not say, uh, continue in faith rooted in your spiritual experiences. That is not saving. Right, that's going to be the, the people in Luke who stood before Jesus saying, hey, we experienced you. We saw you teach. It was so cool. We thought we, we applauded. You say, depart from me. I, did not, I do not know you. Right? We are not saved because of our experiences. Uh, well, I, you may think, well, I must be saved because I am convinced of my own salvation. I am confident in my own salvation. I go to church. I'm involved. I, I talk about Christian things. I have a very Christian lifestyle. I voted for the conservative party. <laughs> uh, I serve God. I even make sacrifices for him. Right? But saving faith is not based on what we do. Remember, our righteousness are as filthy rags uh, if we are his enemy. All of these will fail because they are not faith in the one thing that truly matters. 
And you are still alienated and hostile. And yes, you may think you have faith, but it is not a faith that will continue steadfast, unmovable, unshakable. Why? Because true and saving faith can be built on the foundation of the gospel alone. On who Jesus is and what he has done to save you. That is the only hope you have. And that is the only certain anchor for our faith. It is the only place upon which we can build a life that has the confidence and assurance of salvation. Right? So, so, uh, so then is doubt wrong? Like maybe you, you have doubts. Maybe you'd say, well, I, I want to continue in faith, but if I'm honest, sometimes I doubt. I doubt the Bible. I doubt Jesus. I, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I can be confident that Jesus is who he said he is. Right? Uh, am I saved if I have doubts? Well, certainly we will all have doubts. And it's the job of Satan, the accuser, to whisper and to, to fill our minds with those doubts, right? That's normal. The problem is not having doubts. The problem is what do we do with those doubts when we have them? Do we turn, turn to the world uh, to get human answers and advice and wisdom? Or do we turn to Scripture? Right? Do we dig into Scripture? Do we wrestle and pray with God and wrestle with Him until our doubts are vanquished? Uh, we deal with doubt by, by simply digging deeper into the hope of the Gospel. Okay? So if you have doubts, if you are not confident in your faith, um, go to the Word. Right? Go to the Gospel. Remember where you came from. Right? Remember that there is nothing in you that can save you. That in your own, you are a hostile enemy of God, full of evil deeds. Um, but, but then dig into what Jesus has done for you. Right? Contemplate the grand truths, about, grand truths about who Jesus is. Like wrap your mind around these passages that talk about uh, Jesus is infinite holy God who came and took on human flesh to die for us. Consider often the great price he paid. I think daily, right? I think daily we build our faith when we wrestle with these truths, when we hold on to them, when we allow them to sink ever deeper into our heart and life. That's what makes us steady, steadfast, unshaken, immovable. Right? When we root our life daily in the truth of the gospel. And we put our faith in what Jesus has done. Right? And we put our faith fully and wholly in what Jesus has done. And finally, we, we, we hold firmly to our future hope. Right? We know that we are held secure and fast. We know that one day we will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. Again, not based on anything I have done. Not based on some experience, not based on uh, my convictions about sin, but based only on what Jesus has done to reconcile us to God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.